I said it, I find it difficult to share Jesus with people. And, and look, I know what you're probably thinking, Liam, you kind of do that as a job. Um, <laughs> you're up here on Sundays preaching or at youth on Fridays that how can you find it difficult to share the gospel? And look, if I'm being honest, this moment up here, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, not that it's necessarily easy to get up here and preach, but I can stand here and I can boldly declare to you that Jesus died for your sins, that he came on a rescue mission for you, that you're not a bad person who needs to do better, you're a sinner who needs a savior. And the reason I can say that so boldly is because you sort of give me permission to do that. In fact, in a lot of ways, most of you sort of come with the expectation that that's what's gonna happen every Sunday. But you know what I find much, much harder is having that same conversation with pretty much everyone else. Uh, whether it's talking to a stranger on a bus or having a chat with a non-believing friend, I, I find it difficult to preach the gospel to them in the same way. It's awkward, it's difficult, I never really feel like I've got the right words to say and, and I can't do what I do up here on a Sunday. I mean, I, I've tried, I can't say things like, hey, if you've got your Bible with me, you turn to Acts chapter four. Uh, I've, I've tried that, they just give me a really weird look. It, it doesn't work for some reason. Uh, but, but seriously, sharing the gospel, it's difficult, right? And again, just talking about me for a second, but I've had those moments where when I was working uh, in the business world before I came into ministry where I'd be having a proper conversation with somewhere, they'd, someone, they'd be asking the right sort of questions and yet I would just sort of give lukewarm answers. Or I've had those moments where I would skirt around the fact that I go to church on Sundays or that I love Jesus or that I knew deep down that my workmates really needed Jesus. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about? You're gonna crawl under that bus with me? Uh, and it's weird because we know the gospel. We know we've been transformed by it, we've been saved by it, and yet somehow we often have, we fail to have the courage to actually go out and declare it. See, we're in the middle of this series uh, called Emboldened. As together we look at how the early church was given this supernatural boldness that by the empowering of the Holy Spirit in and through their lives, they did things that ordinarily they would never have been able to do on their own. And what we've seen so far is that in the first week they were given an emboldened faith, faith to declare healing over the sick and salvation for the lost. And then last week we saw they were given emboldened words uh, to share truth with those around them. And what I wanna talk into this evening is the fact that they were also given an emboldened courage. That in the face of massive opposition from the world around them, they were able to boldly declare the truth of the gospel to a world that desperately needed it. And because we today are given that same spirit within us, we're actually given access to that same boldness and that same courage today. Awesome, so uh, if you've got your Bible with you, we are gonna be in Acts chapter four tonight, Acts chapter four, and see what I mean? I say it and you guys just pull out your Bibles, you start turning, that makes this so much easier. Um, all right, uh, in, in case you've missed the last two weeks, uh, we've been tracking along the story uh, right at the start of the book of Acts. Uh, so Peter and John, they're on their way to church when a beggar interrupts them. Uh, we later find out this beggar's been lame for the last 40 years uh, and, and he's asking for money. Peter and John, being in ministry, clearly don't have any money on them. And so they turn to him and say, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus. And in that moment, in that instant, the man is healed 
And he gets up and he's running and he's jumping and he's, he's gone. Uh, and evidently the man's story is pretty well known because it's like all of a sudden all of Jerusalem is coming to the temple to work out what is going on. Uh, and Peter and John being good evangelistic followers of Jesus, they start preaching. And so that's where we're jumping into things. We're sort of at the tail end of that sermon. Uh, we're in the, the temple courts themselves and there's probably a couple thousand of people in attendance at this sermon. All right, Acts chapter four, verse one. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. All right, so as I said, Peter is sort of midway through his sermon. And before he gets to the altar call, before he invites the band up to close off the service, his sermon is interrupted by a group of priests, temple guards, and Sadducees. And what we're told is that this group is greatly disturbed or greatly upset by what Peter and John were teaching. And in order for us to actually understand why they were so upset, we need to do a little detour into ancient Judaism. Uh, so what we know of ancient Judaism at the time is there were four main sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Uh, so the Pharisees, most of us are pretty familiar with. Uh, their whole deal was that they uh, were really dedicated to the Scriptures. And the expectation was that if they knew the Scriptures well enough, they'd be the first people to recognize the Messiah when he eventually showed up. Uh, which is ironic because they spend most of the Gospels arguing with Jesus, the Messiah, about the fact that he's not following scriptures. Uh, then we've got the Essenes, who basically look at the Roman occupation and they go, no, nah, we're out of here. They head over to the Dead Sea, they start the Qumran community, and they're where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. Then we've got the Zealots, who are also not super keen on Roman occupation, uh, but their response is to go militant and they spend most of their time trying to overthrow Roman occupation and assassinate tax collectors and the like. Uh, and then finally, and this is sort of the, the key group here, we've got the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were a wealthy upper-class sect that were heavily involved in the running of the temple in Jerusalem and the order of the priests. Unlike the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible as legitimate, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and because of that limited view on, on what was actually canon, that meant they didn't believe in things like the immortality of the human soul. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection of the dead. Uh, they didn't believe in the existence of angelic or demonic spirits. And importantly, they didn't believe that the Messiah was actually gonna be a real human person, but more that he was an ideal that they had to live up to, sort of this figurative or uh, symbolic person that they were supposed to aim to emulate. And if you want to remember that, and you'll never forget it if I tell you this, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, I know it's cringy, but you, you won't forget it, I promise. Um, but, but, <laughs> uh, well, what that means for us tonight is, is the reason the Sadducees were so upset by what was going on in this moment, it's actually predominantly an issue of theology. Uh, that because if Jesus really was the Messiah, if he had come and lived a perfect human life, died a sinner's death and then was resurrected on the third day, what that means is not only is their view of the Messiah completely wrong, but so is their view of resurrection. And again, Peter isn't preaching the resurrection of Jesus, although that alone would have posed some sort of issue for the Pharisees. Uh, if you see the phrasing there in that verse, it says he is preaching the resurrection in Jesus. 
In other words, at the end of the age, uh, all humanity is gonna be resurrected and those who are resurrected into Jesus will be resurrected into eternal glory and those who aren't would be resurrected into eternal judgment. And so what that means is all that Peter is preaching in this moment, all the truth he is revealing to this crowd, it stands in stark contrast to what the Sadducees believe is true. And that's why they're upset. That's why they're not so happy with the sermon that Peter is preaching. And look, if I'm being honest, I think we find ourselves in a very similar situation today. Um, that if you go out into this world around us and you preach the truth of the gospel, you will receive a very similar response. And look, I know we live in a world that doesn't claim to have theology, that they claim to be atheistic and agnostic, but the fact of the matter is that the world around us still has a set of beliefs. It still has a set of values and views, and, and they still stand in stark contrast to what we believe the gospel preaches. Uh, and so what will happen is if we get up and we boldly declare the truth of the gospel, like Peter and John are doing in their sermon, what will necessarily happen is it will cause offense, it will cause irritation and it will cause opposition. Because what we believe, church, is not what the rest of the world believes. That their story is shaped by a very different message to the gospel. And so what happens to Peter and John is, uh, in verse three, the, the, they, the, the Sadducees seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So they get arrested. And, then, and I just love this next verse because despite the fact that they get arrested midway through their sermon, verse four, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And look, that is actually really, really important because what that means is that it isn't the eloquence of what Peter and John are preaching that actually has an impact on people's lives. It isn't the intelligence of the argument that somehow sways people over, but it is the power of the Spirit working through the delivery of the gospel that actually has the ability to have an impact in people's lives. See, church, no one will ever hear a carefully worded argument and then see the person getting uh, preaching that argument get arrested and go, yeah, I want what he has. No one sees someone facing difficulties and persecution and hardship because of what they believe and goes, yep, I'll sign up for that deal. No, the fact of the matter is that Peter and John are preaching the gospel and there is power when that truth is delivered. That the, the, the gospel has this power to tug on the strings of our hearts. It can bring us, bring us to moments of salvation, to conviction and repentance. That the gospel does something that no other message can. It changes lives. It changes eternities. That Blaise Pascal once said, the gospel is simply irresistible. And look, this really is the first point for tonight's message that I wanna draw out of this uh, situation is that yes, the gospel does stand in stark opposition to the world around us. Yes, it, it is different to what the world believes and yet somehow despite being so different, it still has the power to save. It still has the power to change people's lives, that people will still be brought onto salvation because the Holy Spirit works when the gospel is declared. And that is exactly what is happening in this moment. And so verse five, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. 
Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. All right, so Peter and John, they get arrested, they get put in jail overnight, and then in the morning, they get brought into the court of the Sanhedrin, sort of the high court of the Jewish faith. And what I want you to picture is sort of a stone amphitheater uh, situated within the heart of the temple itself in a room called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. And Peter and John would have immediately been confronted with a group of 70 uh, Pharisees and Sadducees seated around this amphitheater. And in the middle, sort of on a, a raised up throne, they would have sat the high priest. And then verse seven, they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them, asking by what power or what name did you do this? See, despite the fact that Peter and John were arrested for the words they were preaching, the actual issue at hand, it's not so much a matter of what they believe, but under whose authority and by what power they are acting. And I know it doesn't look like it in this moment, but what is actually happening here is the court is giving Peter and John a really easy out. Because all they have to say in this moment and and escape all further uh, issues or ramifications of this moment is they just have to get up and say, God. All they have to do is say, we were healing and we were preaching under the name of Yahweh. Because no one in the courtroom is gonna argue with that. It doesn't ruffle any feathers. It doesn't contradict anyone's theology. It doesn't mess with their framework of how the world operates. And look, it wouldn't even be technically wrong if that's what Peter says in this moment. Because we know God is Jesus, Jesus is God, and that that is a true statement, but it is a watering down of what Peter knows has truly happened. And look, again, we, we can do the exact same thing today. That when we're having these discussions with the world around us, there is always an easy out. There is always a watered down response that we can give. That if you are living an authentic Christian life and someone comes up to you and they say, hey, why are you so generous? Why are you so kind? Why do you love people the way you love people? Why do you go to church every Sunday? We can turn to them and and be completely correct and say something of the lines of, well, I just think it's the right thing to do. Or it's what my parents did. Or you can even say, I'm religious. And the world is happy for that to be our responses. See, church, that the world around us is happy for us to be religious. That is something that fits within their framework of how the world works. We just can't be people that authentically follow after Jesus. That the world is happy for us to be spiritual so long as we don't claim there is only one truth, one religion, one God, and one means to salvation, and his name is Jesus. So long as you keep it in your own little world and it doesn't interrupt anyone else's belief or faith, the world is happy for you to be religious. And look, I think, I think Peter is fully aware of the fact that he is being given a, a really easy out in this moment. That with one lukewarm answer, he can slip out of this court and not face any troubles. But I think there are at least two things that, that probably go through uh, Peter's mind that prevent him from doing that. And the first thing he's, he's probably doing is he's probably going back to some of the things that Jesus taught while he was still on the earth. That in Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples that whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, 
I will disown before my Father in heaven. That Peter is fully aware that there is a lot of weight hanging in this moment. That, that his response has huge eternal impacts. And so that's one thing that, that's probably going through Peter's head. And the other thing that he's probably thinking about is the last time he stood in a court just like this one. In fact, the last time he was standing before the high priest. And it was the night Jesus was arrested. And what happened last time was a little teenage girl came up to him and said, hey, do you know Jesus? And Peter was given a very similar moment where he could respond. And he said, no, I don't know Jesus. No, I deny that name. And look, again, I wonder if you've been there, church. Because I know I have. And in fact, I have a very crystal clear memory of uh, this time when I was working in the business world before I came into ministry. And I was sitting down at lunch and one of my workmates came up to me and he said, hey, you go to church, right? I was like, yeah, I do. Um, and he, he turned to me and asked the best question you could ever hope a non-believing workmate to ask you. He said, why do you, believe, why do, you do that? Why do you believe the things you believe? Seriously, best setup you could ever ask for. I can't, even, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was, it was a really watered-down solution. Something about the fact that I grew up in a Christian household and I sort of made a choice somewhere in high school that it was a safe answer, a lukewarm answer. And again, I, I didn't say anything incorrect. I didn't deny the name of Jesus. I didn't lie to this guy, but there was a moment where I could have boldly declared the name of Jesus where I could have done something, anything that pointed him towards my savior. And I didn't. And look, I don't know how that story ends. I don't know what he's doing now. I haven't followed up with him. I don't know if he's, someone else has invited him to church, but the fact of the moment, there was that moment that I had and I made the wrong choice. And look, for most of us today, the struggle we will be facing, it's not, do I deny Jesus? It's not, do I deny the fact that I've ever met this guy called Jesus? But it's, do I give the safe answer? Do I give the soft answer, the easy answer? And look, that's gonna look very different in your circumstances and your workspace and the relationship you have with different people. But we need to ask ourselves that in those moments, are we just doing the very least possible, and just ticking off that box and saying, well, at least we tried? Or are we doing what Christ has called us to do and boldly declaring the truth of the gospel into people's lives? And so look, I think Peter is looking back at that moment, I do. I think something inside his heart is breaking as he remembers the time he has fallen short before. And so I don't think he can do that again. I don't think he could live with himself if he did. And so, so somehow he just takes a little step forward. He just does something inside him. He's like, no, I'm, I'm gonna make the right choice here. And then verse eight, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's very important because what that means is this isn't Peter speaking in his own strength now. He's made the decision. He's made the mental ascent to the fact that he is going to declare the gospel. And what happens is the Holy Spirit comes upon him and starts moving in and through him to declare the gospel. That he is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And every time that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, occurs in the book of Acts, it is immediately followed with something along the lines of, and then they spoke, or and then they said, or and then they declared. That every time in the book of Acts, someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they cannot help but declare the truth of the gospel. That church, the world around us will always give us an easy out. It will always give us an, op- an opportunity to give a soft answer or an easy answer. But what we need to do, know is that the Spirit will always give us the courage. He will always give us the boldness to declare the truth of the gospel. That the Holy Spirit will always come alongside us and it give us exactly what we need to say in those moments. That in Matthew 10, 20, Jesus says, at that time it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of God speaking through you, so you do not need to worry about what you are going to say or how you are going to say it, for God will give you those words. That the Holy Spirit gives us the courage, gives us the boldness to declare the gospel. And so verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now this is the third time Peter's been given the opportunity to preach the gospel and every time he gets up, he he hasn't said anything theologically complex or anything particularly deep or, or, or anything wordy. In fact, he has said the exact same thing all three times. You crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead and that is our way to salvation. It's the same message every single time. You crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead and that is where, how you get into eternity. And you know what's crazy? Every other time he's, he's said that really harsh line to the crowd around him, they didn't play a, a direct role in putting Jesus on the cross. But this group, the court of the Sanhedrin, they actually sat a session on the night of Jesus' crucifixion and they made a ruling that they were gonna send him to the Roman authorities to be crucified that they actually had a direct role, that when he says, you crucified Jesus, they made the choice that sent Jesus to the cross, and so it hits them a little bit different than it hits every, everyone else. And so then Peter does something really interesting. He quotes Psalm 118 to the, the Sadducees. Verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone that he's just straight out quoting from Psalm 118. And for sure what that means is he's expecting them to go to the Psalm in their heads and sort of run through those verses because they would have had it memorized. Uh, And if you read through Psalm 118, it's just this amazing poem that points to Jesus and the fact that he is our salvation. Um, I'll read through a little bit of it. So Psalm 118 from verse 19, uh, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation, that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. That Peter grabs this piece of scripture and he turns to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees and he's like, hey guys, you missed the whole point of it. 
That all of the Old Testament, it pointed to this one man who was gonna come and live a perfect life, die a sinner's death on the cross, and then be raised on the third day. And this Messiah, he wasn't just an ideal to live up to, but he was a living and breathing person whose name was Jesus. And you guys rejected him. You rejected the narrow gate that leads to righteousness. You rejected the cornerstone upon which God has built his people. You rejected your salvation. For for sure, that is what Peter's expecting to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to do in the head, but... The second thing I think he's doing here is he's making them recall the last time they had this psalm quoted to them. See, if you read through the um, the New Testament in chronological order, what you'll see is the last time someone quotes Psalm 118 to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests in the temple that they're now standing in, it was Jesus making that quotation. Uh, So we find that in Matthew 21, Uh, So, and when he, Jesus, entered into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, so the same group of crowd that Peter is talking to now, came up to Jesus as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? I think think that's just crazy. See, they're asking Jesus the same question that just a couple months later, they asked Peter and John. By what authority are you teaching? By what authority are you preaching? By what authority are you doing these miracles? And Jesus answered them, well, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, then we are afraid of the crowds. For we know they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then Peter, uh, so then Jesus goes on to give two parables about the fact that they're missing the whole point of the gospel. And then jumping back in at verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? Awesome line to tell a bunch of people that spent their life memorizing scriptures. Uh, have you never read the scriptures that the stone is the builders, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who, who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. It's like Peter is just full on slapping the Sadducees in the face and he's going, hey guys, remember last time this psalm was quoted to you? And you were so fixated on your religion and what people thought of you and what the crowds were doing that you missed Jesus. It's like Peter is turning to this court before me. He's going, okay, well, last time this question, you asked this question, under whose authority am I preaching? You guys missed the answer because your heart was in the wrong spot. And Jesus couldn't answer you last time, but now let me tell you the answer to that question. It is under the name of Jesus that we have authority. It is under the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that we are preaching this truth. That verse 12, salvation is found, under no, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
There is no other way to salvation, church. Jesus did not come to give us one way out of many. It is in Christ and Christ alone that our salvation is wrought. And the reason I can say that with such surety is because of the prayer that Jesus prayed on the night before his crucifixion. That Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. If it is possible, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if Oprah is right and all roads lead to heaven, if you can just align your chakra or practice the five pillars of Islam, if you can just reincarnate enough times around to, to become perfect, if you can just achieve enlightenment, if you can work your own salvation, then it seems like an awful waste of the blood of the Son of God to die on a cross. That Jesus is the only way we can enter into salvation. It is only by the blood of the lamb that we can be washed white as snow. And church, you know what the world will tell you if you give them that truth? That it is only in the name of Jesus that you can be saved. They will turn to you and they will tell, us, they will tell you you are being incredibly narrow-minded. And you know what? I don't really think that wrong. It is an incredibly exclusive statement to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. In fact, it is the most exclusive statement we can possibly make because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But at the same time, it is the most inclusive salvation statement the world has ever known because it is open to everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whomsoever believes. That yes, sure, small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life and only a few find it, but the gate is open to whoever would choose to enter through it. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That yes, sure, it's an exclusive statement but it is also a, an incredibly inclusive statement at the same time. And church, if we believe that, if that is the truth that we confess, then how can we do anything but declare it to a world that so desperately needs to hear it? That the third point of, the, of tonight's message is that yes, the, the world will often miss Jesus. They will often do, be too focused on what the crowds are doing or on religion or, or on their own lives that they will miss looking and seeing Jesus present. But if salvation comes through his name alone, then we must declare it. We must preach it. We must share it to a world that desperately needs it. That is the summary of Peter's entire argument here, that Jesus Christ is salvation. And he cannot do anything but declare that truth. And verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Verse 14, but since they could, not, uh, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. And look, I'm not sure why this man is here. I assume he wasn't arrested as well, but... Um, I sort of love Luke's sense of humor here. When they saw the man who has been healed standing there, the man's been unable to stand for the last 40 years and now he's standing in court. Uh, but 
Yeah, for some reason he's there. And so verse 15, they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together saying, what are we gonna do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. And look, this is the final point for tonight that even though the world cannot deny the power of the gospel, even though the world cannot help but see that something is different about being a Christian, we must be careful that we still declare the name of Jesus. See, the Sadducees could not deny that God had moved in a mighty way, that in and through the name of Jesus, something was different in a real and tangible way in this man's life. And church, the same should be true of us today, that people should look at us, look at the church, look at the Christian faith, and they should be unable to deny that there is something different about us. That even if they don't believe what we believe, and if they don't acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they should look at the Christian uh, population and say, hey, something is different about that group over there. That business owners who are atheists should be interviewing for new roles and they should be more prone to hiring Christians because they know they're gonna be more honest, more trustworthy, more hardworking than anyone else and they will be more fruitful somehow in all that they do. That fathers who are ardently opposed uh, to the Christian uh, way of living should still want for their daughters to marry Christian men based solely on the fact that they know their daughters will be treated better, treated the way they should if they marry that sort of man. That church, our our sick should be getting healed, the broken should be being restored, the ignored, the lonely, the outcast should be finding homes, that the world should look at us. And even if they don't believe anything we believe, they should be unable to deny that something is going on in that place. Something is going on with those people and they should desire that. But even if that is the case, that does not mean we can assume that it is enough for the gospel to be declared. Let me me expand that thought. See, the world is always gonna be happy for us to do good deeds. The world is happy for us to start charities and schools and hospitals. They are happy for us to raise their children and care for the sick so long as we do not do it in the name of Jesus. And so we must never make the mistake of failing to attribute every good work to the power of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. Not just because Jesus is worthy of receiving all glory and honor, which he is, but also because we need to make sure that the world around us knows that we can do none of it apart from his power in us. See, there's this story I once heard, and actually the band can start coming up as I jump into this story. Uh, about this man who, who rocked up to work one day. And look, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but it gets a point across, I'm gonna tell it anyway. And <laughs> the man walks into his boss's office, he knocks on the door and says, hey boss, can I talk to you? And the boss says, yeah, come on in, what's, what's the issue? And then he sits down and he says, I've decided I'm gonna become a Christian. And there's a moment of shock on the boss's face and then he turns to the, uh, the new believer and he says, that's exciting, that's so good. I've actually been praying for you to come to know Jesus for the last five years you've been working for me. And for some reason, 
the, the employee just has this look of sadness and shock and disgust come across his face. And he turns to his boss and he says, well, why did you never tell me that? Because that was almost the reason I didn't become, you were almost the reason I didn't become a Christian. See, I saw, I saw the sort of life you were living. I saw how generous you were with your time and your money. I saw how kind you were to your employees, how much you loved the people around you, people that had no right to, to receive your love and yet you were just so compassionate with them. I saw the way you treated your kids. I saw the, the way you, you cared and you gave money to charity. I, I saw this amazing life you were living. And then I heard about this Jesus guy. And I heard about how he could change my life. He could help me live that sort of life. And so I was like, well, I don't need Jesus. Because if, you, if my boss can do all those things on his own strength, then maybe I can as well. Maybe I don't need Jesus because I've seen the sort of life you are living and I thought you did it on your own strength. See, church, we've got to be, we have to be really, really careful that everything we do is done in the name of Jesus. That every act of kindness, every moment of generosity or love is done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That if we live a good life, an undeniably God life, and fail to give Jesus all the credit, then all that does is tell the world around us that it might be possible for us to do it on our own strength. And so verse 21, after further threats, they let them go, for they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So church, as we land tonight's message, yeah, sharing the gospel, it's tricky. It's hard, it's awkward. You get confrontation, people don't like what we say, that in a lot of ways it, it opposes the world's outlook on life. And look, there, there are always easy outs. Even in the, the best opportunities, there are always lukewarm answers we can give. The church, we simply can't afford to do that. That there is one name under heaven and earth which is given to mankind by which we may be saved and it is the name of Jesus. Simple as that. In church, this, this world, it needs Jesus. And we don't have to do it on our own, thankfully. We've each, every one of us been given the Holy Spirit in us who, who's gonna guide us and give us words to say and, and courage to say it, that he comes alongside and he empowers us with boldness and courage to declare the truth of the gospel. And at the same time, he is softening people's hearts so they are actually able to receive it at all, that, that we play a very minimal part in this entire interaction. And look, I am very aware of the fact as well that I don't go to your guys' workplaces tomorrow. I don't go to your, uh, your home environments. I, I don't know what your workmates are like or your family is like or your social groups are like. I don't. And tomorrow I go to work and I go to work with a group of pastors. So it's not exactly an environment where I need to be practicing my evangelism all the time. So I don't wanna come off as, as condescending or hypocritical in this statement, but we need to share the gospel. 
And, and so I was sort of challenged by that fact this week that I'm not in the same environment I used to be in. So since I finished this message, I've been praying a simple prayer. And I would just encourage you to start praying that same prayer as well. That firstly, we ask for boldness. We ask for courage. Because if we don't have that, then we're not getting anywhere else at all. So we might as well start there. And after we pray for boldness, we ask God if He would give us opportunities to share the gospel. And if you, want to pray, and if you, if you don't believe God answers prayers, I guarantee you pray that when you ask for God to put people in your life that you can share the gospel to, He will answer that all the time. And so that would be my challenge to you tonight. Pray for boldness and pray for an opportunity. And look, I only finished this message on like Friday night, Saturday morning, so God hasn't answered that prayer for me yet, but um, I, I am fully confident of the fact that He will, and if you pray it, He will answer it for you as well. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna respond by worshiping our God and um, joining together in praise. So would you pray with me? Uh, yeah, Lord, I, I just thank you that the gospel is true, uh, that there is one name under heaven and earth which man may be saved, and it is in the name of Jesus. And I, I thank you that for whatever reason you have chosen to use us to share that gospel, that you have called us to declare that truth to the world around us. And so Lord, tonight I just pray for boldness over this group here, a supernatural courage that makes no sense whatsoever. Lord, that just like Peter, we would go from being someone afraid to, to say, yes, I know Jesus before a little teenage girl to someone boldly declaring the truth of the gospel to thousands. Father, that you would just give us the Holy Spirit and give us courage that we need. And then, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel. That, Lord, this time next Sunday, that this, this room would be double the size because we've just gone out and we've just invited people to church. But, Lord, we, we just give all that, we give the glory to you for that. We give the, the, the acknowledgement to you for that. And we know that it's all your work. So, Lord, bless us. Bless us in the declaration of the gospel to the world around us. In your name we pray, amen.